0: All right, let's begin. Uh, like I said, oh, look, the sound went off. Whoa. Whoa. Isn't that nice? Okay, so studying the Bible. Um, like I said, we want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the foundations of the Bible. We talk about uh, can we, the question is can we trust the Bible, right? Um, I, this is a question that I get asked a lot when we talk to people. Uh, who don't know the Lord, right? Well, your whole faith is based on the Bible. Can you trust the Bible? Um, and it really has, there are two, two parts to this. I think one is the composition of the Bible. How, does, how did we get the Bible that we have, right? And the second one is the translation of the Bible. Can we trust the way that the Bible is translated, okay? Oh, yeah, maybe the original texts so were inspired by God, but can we trust... The translation, right? Does it get lost in translation? And so I think these are two important questions to address. And so I want to talk a little bit, especially about this issue of translation. We're going to talk about translation today. So I brought a bunch of Bibles because we're going to talk about Bible translations. Um, It's important to understand Bible translations uh, because they can be a real help when we're trying to study the Bible, right? And so you have to understand a little bit about how they function so let's talk a little bit about composition of the Bible first. Old Testament books. You got 39 books, right? Where do those 39 books come from? Um, well, there are basically two Greek ver- two ancient versions of the Old Testament. One is in Hebrew and one is in Greek. Obviously, the original one was in Hebrew because it was written for Hebrews, Right. Um, And so the Bible, uh, all of these books were collected and cared for at the temple in Jerusalem. And they were um, all put together there into a set, into a canon, what we call a canon, uh, which is the authorized set of, of, of approved writings. And so all of these were being collected. And then the temple gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so when the people went into captivity, the priests who were carried off into captivity took with them those texts. And they maintained the texts. And then when they came back from captivity 70 years later, under Ezra, the priest, they came back, they started rebuilding the temple, and they maintained those Hebrew texts, okay? And they stopped writing at the end of Malachi, So when Malachi, in the post, what we call the post-exilic period, the time after the exile, the canon stops. That's it. And that's where the 39 Old Testament books come from. All right? But there was another group of people after the temple is destroyed, and they went down to Egypt. And there is a large group of Jews living in northern Egypt in Alexandria that are in essence in exile after the Babylonian. They escaped to Egypt, okay? Um, after, after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and carried off everybody in the third deportation, okay? They even took Jeremiah down there with him, kicking and screaming, okay? Um, so when you wonder why did... Uh, Mary and Joseph go down to Egypt when they were threatened by King Herod? Well, because they had relatives down there. Okay, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt. And so they went down to the, to the Jewish quarter um, in, in Egypt. And so anyway, these guys down there, 200 years before, um, before uh, Jesus is born, they decide to translate all of the Old Testament into the Greek language because the world had become Greek, okay? The world, the, the language um, of, the, of commerce and trade and culture was Greek. And so they translate the Old Testament into the Greek language, which is called the Septuagint, okay? And it is abbreviated with the Roman numerals LXX. <coughs> okay, so you'll see the LXX show up. These guys didn't close their canon. They kept adding books um, as they continued to tell the story of what was going on with the Hebrew people. And so they added books like 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Esdras, and these different books. They are what we know as the Apocrypha. Okay, And so that's where the Apocrypha comes from. They're the extra Old Testament books. All right? So, the question is, which ones do we accept? <laughs> do we accept these Apocrypha books? What do we do with the Greek version? Um, what about the Hebrew? Well, when we come to the Protestant Reformation, the Protestants had to make <clears throat> a decision about this. Because if you remember what Martin Luther says, one of the foundations of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Right only scripture, scripture alone. In other words, scripture alone is the only source of authority in our lives. So if that's true, then it's really important that we know what the scripture is, right? We have to define what books belong to the Bible, okay? And so Martin Luther and those guys at the time of the Reformation, they started asking some simple questions. They said, well, well." how do we evaluate this and they say well what books what books did Jesus accept as the scripture and when we analyze Jesus quotations we realize that Jesus only quoted from the masoretic text he only quoted he may have used the words because of course the new testament's written in greek hey what <laughs> disturbing not at all <laughs> Of course he wrote in Greek, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Testament is written in Greek, so it borrows some of the words from the Septuagint, but yet, as far as his choosing books, Jesus doesn't ever choose to speak from the Apocrypha and the Pharisees at the time of Jesus accepted only the Masoretic text as scripture, and Jesus never. Jesus accepted that. And so these are some of the reasons that they're accepted um, in that way.
1: Dan? Yeah. Did Jesus quote from all 39 books?
0: Not all 39, no.
1: So, I mean, you get that.
0: Yeah, and so they also look at Paul. They look at all the New Testament writers, and New Testament writers don't, don't accept these. It's pretty or clear. don't quote from them. Don't quote from them. So if they never bothered to quote from them in all of their writings, then it's pretty clear that... They weren't. They weren't functioning from this list, okay.
2: What were the most quoted books? Um, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms. Yeah. Probably.
0: Yeah. Yep. So uh, the New Testament. We have twenty-seven books in the New Testament. They're Greek, right? Um, and the New Testament, we have a lot of evidence for the New Testament because it's so much closer, right? And so as the New Testament is coming together. By 367 A.D., Athanasius writes a letter. He's one of the early church fathers. He writes a letter, and he says, these 27 books are the authorized list of books that are accepted. And really, from that point on, we have that authorized list. There were some other books that floated around. and, you know, if you ever watch The Da Vinci Code and things like that, you know that there are other, <laughs> there are other books out there. There's other gospels, the Gospel of Thomas. There's the Gospel of Judas. There's uh, the Gospel according to Peter. There's these what we call pseudo pigraphal books, okay? In other words, pseudo meaning false and pigraphal meaning uh, signed, soft, false autographed books. And so... These were books that were written much later, like three hundred years later, (laughs) but they wrote them in the name of one of the apostles so that they would get credibility. And um, they're fanciful, and they're magical, and they're not—they don't have the same quality as the scripture, the original scriptures. And so when you compare them side to side, you go, "This isn't even the same kind of stuff. this This is like real, you know, allegorical and all these things." So. There's all these, these other books that kind of floated around, and these guys in the early church, they had to sort through all that and say, no, these other books aren't the real deal. These 27 are the real deal. Do, do okay. we
3: know who authored those, some of those books? or?
0: No. Okay. No. I mean, because internally they say they were authored by, yeah. Yeah. by the apostles, but yeah. it, it's they, clear it's that terrible. they weren't. They came much later did they have several
3: conferences of church leaders who decided who
0: was in and who was out? Yeah, they did. You know, if you look at this date, 325 A.D. is the first church conference, right? And that's when um, it's, it's, it's called by Constantine the first, right? And it's the Council of Nicaea. It's when the Nicaean Creed is written. And they're beginning to define all this stuff. It's after the persecutions kind of stopped. And so now they finally have a chance to come out from the catacombs and uh, have, have open discussions about how do we define the faith. And a lot of it comes in the face of um, heresy, right? So there were guys that were preaching uh, other kinds of gospels, saying that Jesus, for example, wasn't really a man, um, that he, he, was, he was God, or that he was just a man. Endowed by the Holy Spirit, but just a man. That wasn't really God. And so the church had to sort through all this. And in the process, they had to define what were the authentic books of the Bible, right? And so Jerome is going to, um, St. Jerome in in the 300s, he's going to take all of the Greek Bible, which is the Septuagint, and he's going to combine it with the 27 books of the New Testament, and he's going to put them all together into the Greek Bible, and then he's going to translate it into Latin. And he writes the Latin Vulgate, and that becomes the standard Bible for the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, up until what, the 1960s? No, the Catholics,
1: though, kept the Apocrypha.
0: Well, that's why they kept the Apocrypha, because it was in the Greek Bible, because mm-hmm. it came from the Septuagint. Okay. So... They never didn't, they didn't know what to do with it. But think about Catholic doctrine. How does the Catholic doctrine work? Where does truth come from for for the Catholic Church?
1: The priest? The
0: pope. It comes from the institution of the church. Okay? And so if the church controls truth, then it doesn't, they don't have to really define what the scripture is. They can leave it a little loosey-goosey. Because, because it's not only, it's the scripture and it's, the history of the church and its papal declarations all of that become that's how they define truth right and define doctrine and so the church the catholic church didn't really deal with the issue of the bible they didn't clarify it during that whole medieval period they just kind of said you know it's kind of there apocrypha's there we'll put it in the back We got it there. We don't know what to do with it, but we're not going to make a decision, right? They just kind of floated with it until the Reformation. And that's when the Reformers said, no, 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 no. We've got to figure this out. Because if we're going to say that the Scripture is our only source of truth, then we need to define the Scripture. And so they did. And they said 39 books of the Old Testament based on the Masoretic text, plus the 27 books of the New Testament. That's the Scripture. That's it that's your source of authority. And then the Catholics come back in the, in the Council of Trent, what's called the Counter-Reformation, and they say, well, if you're going to choose that, then we're going to add the Apocrypha.
3: <laughs> I mean, that was
0: basically so, yeah. what they did. Okay? So they, that's how that got in the Catholic Bible. So that's how the two Bibles separated out. Okay? Does that make sense? So it's a historical development over time. Um, and uh, And then the issue of translation comes into into effect, because Martin Luther, if you remember, he was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. That's what he did. That was his job. He worked at the University of Wittenberg, and uh, he was a Bible translator. That's what he was. He was a Greek Hebrew scholar. And since people went to the church for truth, then only the priests and the monks and those guys needed to know the Bible because then they would explain doctrine to the people, right? So Bible translation wasn't important. That's why church stayed in Latin all those years. When we get to the Protestant Reformation, immediately Martin Luther says, only scripture, solo, solo scriptura. And then he also says, the priesthood of all believers. Well, if the believers are priests and we can go directly to God and we can read the scripture for ourselves, then we need the scripture in our language, right? And so as a result, he writes the first translation in the vernacular into German. Um, And then they put it on the Gutenberg press and they print it off. And we've got one of the very first what we call vernacular translations of the Bible, modern translations of the Bible. And so he begins a movement of putting the Bible into the vernacular, into common languages, right? And so there are several English translations that begin to start, the Tyndale Bible, and different, different translations that begin to happen until we get to the biggie, right? 1611, the King James. And so finally, right, during, this is all during this time of the Protestant Reformation, King James I, King James Stuart, he brings back in after Bloody Mary and all that stuff that went on in England and all that crazy stuff happens in England. He says, okay, if we're going to have a Church of England, we need an official, authoritative translation of the Bible in the language of our church in the English language. And so he writes, he commissions the, the translation and the compilation of the authorized version, the King James, okay? So that's where we get the King James Bible. And that is really the foundational Bible all the way up until, what, really, the 1950s or so, right? Yeah, When I grew up, you read the King, man. That's what you had. Um, There were a couple other Bible translations floating around at that point, uh, but most people were still reading the King James Bible. Most stuff was in the King James Bible, and now that's changed quite a bit. But we're going to talk about translations here in a minute. Does that make sense to you, okay? I think it's important for us. We're staking our lives and our eternity on the Scripture, right, on the Bible, this book. And so we should understand a little bit about where it came from and how it came together, don't you think?
3: Yeah, I have a question. Where does Aramaic fit into all this? Is that more of a spoken language? Yeah,
0: Aramaic was an older language. It's kind of a a Syrian-slash-Hebrew-Semitic language that was the common spoken language at the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus spoke Aramaic, Um, He probably spoke some Greek as well. um, But he would have preached and given his sermons. We know from the scriptures there's Aramaic in it. Mm -hmm. And so we know that Jesus said things in Aramaic. And some of that is preserved in the text. But the original autographs were written in Greek. Because the idea from the very beginning was that the, the, the stories of Jesus needed to be spread into the whole world. So they used... Immediately, they used the Greek language as the means of communicating, knowing that it was the one that everybody knew, right?
2: Dan, is it correct that when the Jews went to Babylon, that they really gave up their Hebrew as their spoken language and assumed the Aramaic at that point, and the Hebrew basically became their religious language. So um, Hebrew really wasn't spoken by anybody except the religious Jews to speak right. of, so I guess that necessitated yeah. the translation into Greek because if anybody who didn't know Hebrew was going to have any encounter with their religious history, it was going to have to be put into a language that people knew and by the time Alexander Hellenized the world, a Greek was the thing, so yeah. it, it really makes sense
0: yeah
2: yeah, because not even all Jews probably could were that.
0: Literate in Hebrew. Yeah. I well, and, and think about the diaspora, right? You've got Jews living everywhere, everywhere in the Greek-speaking world. And so they sense. used the Septuagint, even if they didn't accept the Apocrypha. They used this translation. So when the New Testament happens, when Paul goes from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the gospel, he's using the Greek Bible. He's using the Septuagint. Okay? And so... A, we're going to talk about the Septuagint it's really important because these guys 200 years before Jesus made decisions about Greek words or Hebrew words and they and they decided which Greek words would stand for those Hebrew words and so they made that translation and by making that translation they shaped the the words that would be chosen by the apostles and 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 the church as they began to talk about Jesus and God in the Greek language in the New Testament. So there's a lot of connection between the Septuagint. And so there are a lot of things that we can learn as we look backwards um, at the Septuagint. We're going to do a little bit of work on that.
2: In reading a lot of commentaries, they'll go back and say, well, the Hebrew is rather obscure, and we're not exactly sure what this Hebrew word means. So by the time we're moving later and later... The Hebrew is really becoming more and more obscure,
0: isn't
2: it? Well, We're not sure yeah. what some of the words mean, and, and those vowel markings, and it, it's kind of. Uh,
0: Hebrew is one of the oldest languages in the world. And not only is it one of the oldest languages, it, at its time it was cutting edge. Because it's one of the first languages that uses letters to represent sounds rather than letters to represent things. Because, like cuneiform and Chinese, they have characters that represent a boat, or a, the sun, or a tree. Hebrew is one of the first that represents the sounds of a spoken language. It only uses consonants, not vowels, um, which makes it challenging. Um, and it was, it it's so old that it's relatively simple. It's not very complex of a language, and so, a lot of, it, there's a lot of figurative language in it, because that's the only way to say it. They didn't have the precise words. By the time you know Greek evolves and with its, philosoph- its background in philosophy and all of that, they developed their language in such a way that their language became very precise. right? Hebrew never got there. you know Hebrew's much simpler, and so it's a <coughs> little bit. More difficult, And so having an ancient Greek translation where some guys in 200 and so B.C. made some decisions about what that Hebrew word meant, that helps us as we're yeah, trying to figure out. If we can't figure, if we don't have enough Hebrew evidence, there's not a large body of Hebrew, Hebrew writing, right? Uh, then it helps us that someone so long ago made a decision in another language that that's what this word means. So that helps, yeah. What
1: are they speaking in Israel now? Do they still use the Hebrew well, that's language? That's a
0: great question. He, the Hebrew language died, right? Oh, okay. They wrote it. It was, it was after, after Rome destroys the temple again. And uh, everyone is dispersed. All the Jews are dispersed around the world. They picked up the vernacular. I mean, they, they and their Hebrew really gets lost, okay? and it's not spoken anymore. They still have it written, okay? They could still read it, the, the scholars, the rabbis, but it's pretty much lost. So when Israel reconstituted as a nation, they were trying to decide what language they would speak. Should they speak Russian, because a lot of them were Russian Jews? Should they speak Spanish, because a lot of them were Spanish Jews? Should they speak German, because a lot of them were German Jews? Or English, what, what language should they choose? And they decided, hey, if we're resurrecting our nation, why don't we resurrect our language? Mm. And so they took Hebrew, and no one knew how it was spoken. So they took Spanish vowel sounds, because the Spanish vowel sounds are the easiest. They're the clearest, right? A a, e, o, u. They don't change a lot. And they applied those to their language, and they reinvented their language, and they resurrected it. So they speak Hebrew. They reinvented the language so and taught everyone to speak and write the lang- their ancient language in a new way. It's amazing. It's really amazing. So they resurrected the Hebrew language. It's also interesting that there are
3: thousands and thousands of these old texts that have been found that not only are they uh, consistent with one another, but they... Uh, Oh, I'm jumping ahead of <laughs> you. You oh, made the yeah. logical leap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. they, they, uh, they had these, when they got ready to relearn Hebrew, they had a lot of Hebrew copies available to uh, work from. Yeah. Well, and yeah, then,
0: and so what, one thing just to just say about the Hebrew, mm-hmm. one of the issues with the, with the Old Testament is the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had were dated 1000 AD. Oh. They were the oldest that we had. And so a lot of modern scholars in the early 1900s said, we can't trust the Old Testament. We can't trust the Old Testament because a thousand years after Jesus is born and we that's the earliest Old Testament text we have this thing who knows what it was originally it changed in a thousand years I mean you can bet your bananas on that right and so that was discrediting the Old Testament and that was all true until the Dead Sea Scrolls when they that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so so very important They found these Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, right? 1948, 49. And when they found these, it gave us texts of the Old Testament in Hebrew from the time of Christ and earlier. So it went back back a thousand years, and we were able to take the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare them with the newer texts that we had, and there was no significant change. (laughs) So God had preserved his word over time. And that's what's so important about the Dead Sea Scrolls and such an important um, piece of evidence for us as believers in the text, right? Because that text was miraculously preserved over time. Isn't that cool? So the Dead Sea Scrolls are really cool. So uh, what John was saying is we don't have the original manuscripts. And if when we talk about the, we call them the original autographs. We believe that the original autographs were inspired by God, but we don't have any of them. (laughs) Bummer, right? So how do we know what the original, what originally Mark or Matthew or Luke or Paul wrote if we don't have a copy, if we don't have their original autograph, the original page that they wrote? Because we know that it was all hand copied. And so, what about copier errors? What about people embellishing what was written or changing, outright changing what was written? We know that happened, right? And so, how do we have any confidence in what the text says? And that's where we come to this tree, okay? The original autographs are like the trunk down here at the bottom. And think about what happened in time. In time, Uh, the original autographs are written. Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians and he sends it to Corinth, right? The guys in Corinth, they gather the church at night. As soon as they get the letter and everyone is there and they read the letter from Paul. You can imagine what that was like, right? They read the letter of 1 Corinthians for the first time. And then immediately, later that night, guys go into the back room and they start copying it. They start copying it and sending it to other churches. And then they get it and they copy it and they send it to other churches. And then after a while, after handling the scroll for 50 years it starts getting worn out. So somebody sits down and copies it over so that they got a new copy of the old scroll, right? And so you've got all of these copies that begin to happen. And it looks like a tree because there are branches that go out different directions, right? Because this guy is the original autograph and three guys wrote copies, right? That night. And then those copies were copied and those copies were copied and they branch off and so what happens is we have a whole group of scholars that look at this body of evidence, because we have, we have manuscripts and fragments of copies from all over this tree, and they compare them with one another to try to understand what was the original text, what was the original thing that was said. So, for example, and it's a very careful science, and it happened so carefully and so scientifically, and we have so many so such a large body of evidence, right, much more than any other ancient document, that we have confidence that we've been able to reconstruct and say with authority, "This is what the original autograph was. This is what the original text was, okay um, Any. Mm where there is a problem there are areas where there is some concern it's not in an area where it changes christian doctrine okay so all of the major passages the john 316s the romans 8s all of these different passages that are so key in establishing what we believe about salvation and everything no doubt no disagreement Some little minor places here and there, there are disagreements, and all of that is noted. If you look at the Greek Bible, I didn't bring my Greek Bible, there's an apparatus at the bottom that gives you information about every place where there was disagreement, and what text said what, and what text said this, and how sure the committee felt that this was. They rated a one, two, or three. (laughs) I mean, it's all very, very scientific. So that's why we have some places where you'll have a note in your Bible that says, this other word might be here. Somebody look up Mark chapter 9, verse
2: 29. Aren't there even incidences that are in all the manuscripts? I was thinking about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Isn't that one of the things that's not mentioned in some of the older manuscripts? And they always notate it. And...
0: Exactly. And the ending of Mark. The yeah. ending of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, somebody read Mark 9, nine, twenty-nine. 29.
1: And and he said to them, this kind cannot
2: come out by anything but prayer. This kind
0: of what? He's talking about a demon. Demon. Oh. Okay. Is there a note in your Bible?
1: Yes. This kind kind of demon can be conquered only by prayer. Some
0: manuscripts add the word and fasting. And fasting. Right? So there's one of these areas. There's a discrepancy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a simple little thing. And the, the general rule of thumb is this. Simple is better and shorter is best. Okay? Usually, <laughs> the people who are copying, when there's a change, if it was intentional, then it's probably they added words rather than took away words because they wanted to clarify things. You know how you always said, boy, I wish the Bible would have just said this. Well, some guys actually did that. <laughs> so they said, "Well, let me just clarify that um, it should say prayer and fasting." So they added the word fasting in there, and it showed up on one of the branches. And they traced it back and said, "This is basically where it happened." Wow. And so that's why there's a discrepancy. Okay. So we have those things all in and around the Bible, and that's why you'll have sometimes a note that will say this verse maybe is in doubt, or that particular word is in doubt, or addition, phrase, is in doubt, okay? So shorter is usually best, and simpler. Usually the most confusing reading is the best, um, is probably the most original. Why? Because the tendency of a person copying was to plane it out. You know, you get a two or three hundred years, or four hundred years, or a thousand years down the road, and you're copying the scriptures, and you're saying, this doesn't make any sense to me. If I said it this way, it would be a lot clearer, right? <laughs> so they try to clarify it. But since we have so many different branches, we can figure out where that copyist did that, <laughs> and then we can clean it up, okay? It's pretty amazing. I, I don't know. I'm a geek, but it's pretty amazing. I think it is amazing. And uh, so that's what happens. Let's talk a little bit about translation in our end. <laughs> I want to talk about literal translation versus interpretive or interpretation of meaning. Two different philosophies in translation. Um, let's talk about literal translation is word for word translation. And interpretation of meaning is what does the phrase mean? Then I write down what it means. Okay? Now, I put a little Spanish here because of my experience in, in translation. I do a lot of translating, right, in Spanish. So I wrote this little phrase. El hombre está detrás del palo. Mm -hmm. The man is behind the tree. That's what it literally means. That is the word-for-word translation, Mm -hmm. okay? The man is behind the tree. However, you guys don't know what that even means, what I'm trying to say, because it's culturally interpreted, right? It's a figurative statement. And if you don't know the culture behind this statement, then you won't understand the statement. So if I'm interpreting the meaning, the man is confused or misinformed (coughs) or uninformed, okay? That's what it literally means. So when I'm translating something, if my wife is speaking and I'm translating for her from Spanish to English, I have to hear what she's saying and I have to make a decision. Am I going to go with a literal word for word translation or am I interpreting the meaning of what she's saying, okay? This is an important, this is the way translators function. And sometimes they do word-for-word, and sometimes they do interpretation of meaning. I think most generally you want to stay as close to word-for-word as you can until it's not intelligible. And then you want to interpret the meaning, right? Yes.
1: Dan, as a bilingual speaker, does the, does Lita, let's say, you know, her original language, being Spanish, does she see what she's saying there, elaborate, et cetera, as being the one on the right or the one on the left? As being a native speaker?
0: Well, as a native speaker, she's saying this.
1: No, I know. But as she, in that language, yes, that's what she's saying. But is her mindset feeling the right or the left?
0: Well, she doesn't need to.
1: No. You know, it's like, it, well, to... it's
0: like if if you're speaking in English uh-huh. and you say something in English, like... Um,
1: but, I mean, the, the left side means something totally different than the right side. Is she seeing it more as the right side in that language or the left side in that language?
0: Well, you see, for her, if she were to translate it word for word, she would still understand it. If she understood English, she would understand this expression. Right. So right? And she understands this because, she knows because that's the way she relates it in her what mind. What I mean
1: is the man in her mind... Uh, confused and uninformed or is he st- standing behind a tree?
0: Both. Because it's the it's the figure of speech, right? So she understands the figure of speech for what it means. Like if I say uh, like if I say you, you know, Deb, you're a pain in the neck. I'm not talking about the vertebrae <laughs> in, in, <laughs> yeah. below your head, right? I don't even though that's the way it would be translated, right? That's not what I mean, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to make that that decision because I understand. Understand I understand what the words mean in my context, okay? (laughs) So what are the advantages of a literal translation? The advantages of a literal translation are, number one, it preserves the words and structure. The disadvantage is sometimes it's not easily understood. Mm -hmm. So the words and structure become important sometimes if we're studying the Bible because sometimes the repetition of words, as we've seen in our study of Mark, is really important.
2: And there's that psalm where each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and you have no clue unless you get the little footnotes and they tell you that. Right. Right. all those little Hebrew structures and the Hebrew parallelism right.
0: and And so a lot of figurative language you you'll carry the figurative language over here the problem is you might not be able to easily understand what it means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you're sat, there's some positives but there's some negatives on this side of the equation. It's easily understood but some of that original language and some of the beauty of what was said um, and some of the way that it might connect and correspond with other things yeah. might get lost. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so let's use a, a biblical example. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, I want to talk about Bible translations before you, before you leave. Um, we have literal translations, and we have interpretive translations. And so Bible translators lean in one direction or the other. On these two ways to view in translation. So literal translations are ones that try to preserve as carefully as possible the Greek word order, language, um, and in many and and therefore are more difficult to understand. But yet they're really good for study because they are closer to the original Greek the original language, the original Hebrew. Whereas the interpretive translations are going to be so much easier to read and they're easier to understand. But yet when it comes time to study, you may miss certain things because some of those connections might be broken. All right? So who who are our literal translations? The King James is more of a literal translation. Okay? And if you remember... The king is hard to understand for a number of reasons. He was written in 1611, right? But his word order and everything is just sometimes really, really difficult. The revised standard version was the one that came after the king, still on the literal side, but tried to modernize some of the stuff that was lost, that, that was so antiquated in the English language. The new American standard version probably the best for a literal translation. It is the most difficult to understand sometimes because if it was confusing in the Greek, they tried to make it just as confusing in English. Okay? Because they wanted to carefully, as closely preserve the literal side as they could. Okay? So sometimes the the tenses seem awkward, of the verbs, sometimes the wording is very awkward, sometimes it's di- it 's really difficult to read, but it 's as close as you can get. The new King James is also a, a good literal translation, and probably the best modern literal translation is the English standard version, the ESV okay on the interpretive side. <coughs> We have, do you remember Good News for Modern Man? (laughs) That was one of the first ones that tried to do this interpretive approach. Uh, It's a translation, but it's more interpretive. Uh, The Good News for Modern Man, today's English version. Um, The New International Version, 1984. That was the first NIV. Now we have a newer revision of the NIV. And the new, and they just call it the New International Version until they make a new one, then they'll put the date by it. Okay? The New International Version. That's the one we use here. That's the one we use for Bible study. It's the one we use in church generally, is the NIV. And then the New Living Translation is a newer one of those. And then you have paraphrased Bibles. Mm-hmm. And paraphrased Bibles take a whole different tack. They want to take this interpretive idea even a step further so instead of saying you know and the word became flesh and lived among us uh like you know john one fourteen, 14 um, they would say and, and and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood okay that's the message translation it's not a translation it's an interpretation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not bad for devotional reading. Can kind of give you a different perspective than you might have thought otherwise? But it's not great for study. Okay? So, are, is one better than the other? The answer is yes and no. They're both done by scholars who know their stuff. Okay? But they've taken different tacks on how to approach translation. One is trying to help us understand the meaning more clearly. The other is trying to preserve as literally as possible what's originally written. So I'll give you an example. Here's an example from the Bible. We'll stop here. I beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called. This is a word for word from the interlinear Greek, okay? And this is from from Ephesians. The literal translation, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now look at what the NIV says. I urge you to live rather than walk. Okay, see how they've, tra- they've interpreted that for you? They've taken away the idea, this figurative idea of walking. And they said, what he really means here is live. So we're going to just put live in there. So I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. See, so the calling wherewith you have been called has been planed out to the calling you have received. It reads much better over here, doesn't it? But this is much closer to the Greek. Okay? So you see the difference between the two? So when you're studying the Bible and you're really digging into a particular passage, you want to use translations from both sides of the equation. Look at an interpretive translation and look at a literal translation. You should have at least one of each of these. And there's a, there, are, there are sites on the, on, the, on the internet, a place called Bible Hub, where it has like 16 translations across the top. You can look up a passage and then click on all the different translations and lay them out side by side and look at them. Okay, so that's, that's kind of cool, all right? But So you don't even have to go out and buy the Bibles. Um, but does that, help the, does that help you understand a little bit about how these translations function? They're valuable, both sides of the equations, but you have to understand the idea behind the, the translation, what they're trying to accomplish, and then you understand what they're good for. Yeah?
3: Okay, you know, Hebrew was basically an oral passing down right so exactly when did Moses you know start copying this stuff or writing things down and you know I mean and, and it goes on and on and on
0: but, right um, yeah I mean Genesis is an oral tradition uh-huh. and Moses I believe copied it in the desert okay. um, so I think he was the first to write it down he was uniquely prepared to do that he was an educated man right and he had time. God put him in the desert for 40 years. So he had time to write these things down. So I think Exodus was probably written first. He lived it. Leviticus, he was working out, right? Numbers, he lived. And then he said, let me collect these traditions. And he wrote Genesis. So Genesis came together as he's out there in the desert. Yeah. And then those, those original autographs are copied. You move forward. One more quick look. If you look at this, this is, um, this is an analysis of three verses um, from the book of Mark. This is the New American Standard Bible. This is the NIV. Now I want to show the advantage of working with literal translation. Working with a literal translation. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. And now chapter 1, verse 31. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served him. This is Peter's mother-in-law. And now ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now look at the way it reads here. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. So he went to her and took her by the hand and he helped her up and the fever left her and she began to wait on them. For even the son of man did not come to serve but to be served and to give his life a ransom for for many. So clearly in the NASB you see that it's the same word being used in these three examples, and you can see, wait a minute, are these tied together? How should I look at this? Whereas in, in their attempt to make it as clearly and easily read, they pick different words for the same, this is the same word in Greek, but they use three different English words to nuance it in different directions, okay? So you see the difference there? So if you're studying and you're trying to see connections across passages, a literal translation works better if you're trying to read and you want fluidity of reading and, and what it means in each particular passage, they've nuanced it for you in such a way that it makes more sense See the difference mm-hmm. okay so by using both you can begin to uh, sort things you
3: out. <clears throat>
0: You know, I don't know that there there may be, um, um, but yeah. Would you say
3: is it possible the uh, Amplified Bible, which the version I have has four four um, translations, um, the King James, the Amplified, which has a, a lot of things in paragraph or prefaces that will say this is possible other words. I think I can't remember what it's got. The NIV know. and one other. Yeah. So you have, have a paradox. physical yeah um, book that has all four. Yeah. It has, it has four of them together.
0: The amplified, the <coughs> amplified gives you range of meaning on just about every word, and it's impossible to read. But for study, sometimes it helps you to see what are the different options that might be there. Um, but sometimes for the tra- I think it's better to look at different translations than the amplified. Because in different translations, a committee of people, scholars, made the choice and they said this is the best in that range of meaning for this particular, for this particular word. Whereas instead of saying, okay, we've got A, B, and C, and D, and you know, we all know it really should be A, but we're gonna give you all four. Well, you may, you may get misled by looking at one that no scholar would have really chosen but they threw it in the Amplified because it is part of the range of meaning. You know what I mean? So, so it can be helpful to point you to options, but I think the translations are a better route. Anyway, we'll stop there. We've got some other things. What we're going to do next week is we're going to pull up uh, the Blue Letter Bible, and I'm going to show you how to do a Greek or Hebrew-based word study, um, and you can do it without knowing anything about the language but it can tell you which words are the same word being used no matter what they're translated um, in English. And so if you're studying a particular passage and you want to see, is there a pattern? Is there something here? Is there a connection here? You can do that quick and dirty uh, using this tool that I'm going to show you how to use. Okay? So we'll look at that next week. All right.